Hi, everyone, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 6 of Both Sides of the Stethoscope. I am Dr. Colby Salerno, and here with my co-host, Dr. Aline Gregosian. Hi, everyone. Tonight, we're very excited to welcome on a guest. We're going to be having on tonight, Dr. Sejal Patel. Hi, everyone. Dr. Sejal is a two-time kidney recipient, and we will be talking to her about her story, uh, what she's done since transplant. And then additionally, we're going to be talking to Sejal and Aline, both about having received Evusheld. Yep, I got mine like less than a month ago, I think. Same. I got, um, well, they had to do two shots for me just because the first time I got it, it was before they had found out that you actually need 300 milligrams. So I got two different shots, but um, just like Aline, I got mine probably a month ago now, the second dose. Awesome. So we'll be talking about that. So Sejal, uh, I guess just to get us started, um, as I mentioned, you have had two kidney transplants. Tell us a little bit about what led to your first kidney transplant. Okay. So um, my first, my first kidney, it was actually kidney and pancreas transplant. Mm -hmm. So I had type one diabetes since I was about 11 years old. I was doing fine. I went through med school. And then after I came back from med school, um, I just started feeling like faint and like seeing black spots everywhere and almost like I was going to pass out. And I was studying for my boards and I was pretty sure like, you know, just going through school and like learning everything. I'm like, I'm pretty sure I'm anemic. And so I called my doctor and he's like, yeah, just get some blood work done. And um, we found out that my blood count was six at the time. And so the doctors were really confused because all my other blood work was pretty normal. Like my creatinine was normal and, you know, everything else looked fine. So they kind of bounced me from different doctors. And I went to GI, I went to hematology oncology. I, I mean, I saw like probably a few doctors over a span of like six to eight months and no one really could figure out what was wrong. And then um, I always saw my endocrinologist every two to three months, just regularly for my type one. And um, kind of uh, probably about eight or nine months after um, when I saw my endocrinologist, my creatinine had gone from normal to 2.5. And that at that point, they had sent me for a biopsy for, of my kidney. And that took kind of a while to get back to because usually it takes about a week or two to get your results back. But I would say for my kidney um, biopsy, it took about I want to say like one to two months to get my results back. And they just came back idiopathic. So I never really knew the cause of my kidney failure, but I also had type one diabetes. So because of the, the coincidence, they just assumed it was probably the type one. And so from there, I got sent to Mayo Clinic um, because they did transplants preemptively before you started dialysis there. And at the time when I did get my kidney, um, it was kind of rare to be listed preemptively, you usually had to be on dialysis, at least at the hospital that they had in Tucson. And and so I ended up going to Mayo Clinic and getting listed up there and ended up getting my first transplant nine months after I got listed. So, And that was your kidney and, and pancreas together? Yep. And how long ago was that? Um, that was in 2009. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. I have not been around many centers that I have heard um, about the preemptive. I think, you know, it's pretty great idea to try and keep people off of dialysis. Whereas your, if you don't mind me asking, was this uh, a living donor or a deceased donor transplant? They had offered um, 
for me to get a living kidney. And then, cause my dad and mom both wanted to donate, but we kind of decided to just wait because they said that um, it'd probably be a better outcome to just wait for the kidney and pancreas. Cause it's kind of a shorter um, decreased waiting time when you have a dual organ. So for me, I just, I felt like I didn't want a living donor. I just thought I'd wait since they told me it was like a shorter waiting time. And so I ended up just waiting um, for whenever that happened. And some people I heard got it within one to two weeks. And um, I waited a little bit longer, but I was also pretty healthy. I was like working out every day and I didn't, I wasn't in a really bad situation. So I, I think I ended up waiting a little bit longer than the average person who gets on the kidney and pancreas list. Wow. Did, was the decision to transplant the pancreas as well, just due to the fact that you had type one diabetes? And I asked like, so if you did not need a kidney, were they still working you up for a pancreas transplant? They weren't actually, I actually just went up there for a kidney, but because of my age and the outcome of, you know, the kidney lasting longer with a healthy pancreas, they thought I would be a great candidate for kidney pancreas. And the thought, like at the time I was like, wow, if like, I don't have to take insulin anymore and I don't have to, you know, check my blood sugar like 12 times a day. Like that sounds like amazing. So like, for me, it was kind of like, I was pretty excited about the pancreas transplant. So I was like, sign me up for both because that I think was like really amazing to hear, like not having to take shots anymore and do all that. But they also said that there is a high chance of pancreas um, transplants not working well also. So that also was a risk I was willing to take. But then I thought, you know, at the end of the day, like, what do I have to lose? If it doesn't work, then I'll just be doing what I was before. So Right. So this might be a dumb question, but does the pancreas transplant get rid of the diabetes or do you still have to like check your blood sugar every day and at least once in a while? For me, it did. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, my hemoglobin A1C is like 4.6, which is. Oh, wow. Knock on wood. Yeah. (laughs) It's amazing. So for me, it's lasted and knock on wood, still chugging along and it's been great. So I've only ever taken care of one patient with a pancreas transplant because we do it so rarely. But Uh we did recently, um, or like in the last year at least, we did like an islet cell transplantation, which was kind of cool. That's really cool. Yeah. So I think it's like an up and coming field maybe, or maybe I'm just new to it. I'm not sure. It's just not done often. So I'm not used to taking care of patients with pancreas transplants. Yeah. I haven't haven't heard of it being done a lot. I know they were doing that in the lab. Do you know how that patient's doing? From the last time I checked, they were doing well. But um, again, this was a while ago and I never followed up with like outpatient stuff. So I don't know. Mm -hmm. I can find out. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to hear how they're doing now because yeah, I have never heard of that. Mm -hmm. It's a new thing that um, our hospital started doing. I I don't think it's like the first, but very few have been done. Mm -hmm. Um, That's amazing. I had another question. So whenever, like when we do dual transplants at my center, like if we do heart and lung or if we do, I'm sorry, if we do heart and kidney or if we do liver and heart, like one transplant organ kind of leads the way as far as like Mm -hmm. immunosuppression. So is it pancreas or kidney that, that does all that for you? (laughs) I, you know, honestly, (laughs) my pancreas, like for some reason loves, loves prograph. Like, so I always have to be kind of on a higher dose of prograph because my pancreas like will re- kind of react if it's not on a high enough dose. So 
for me, I think um, more so because I'm on Imuran. So I think more so for the pancreas, they kind of keep me at a higher level than normal just because it, it loves it. Like, I don't know what it is, but my enzymes will be like completely normal if I'm at the right level. But if they lower my dose, they notice that my enzymes start creeping up and um, my pancreas is not happy. <laughs> so do they follow your levels, like your prograph levels, but they also check like pancreatic enzymes and stuff too? Exactly. They do my lipase and um, amylase. Amylase. Yep. And then I assume like glucose levels are, are checked at least somewhat often, if not like weekly or monthly. I think, I think they do it on a, I would, I want to say like three month. I see. Yeah. For the hemoglobin A1C, but like my fasting glucose, they do it um, just with the labs. labs. Yeah. Yeah. Every, well, right now, since I just had my pancreas in November, they're still doing labs like every two weeks, but I'm sure. You had another pink. I thought you did your kidney again. Oh no, just my kidney. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what happened afterwards? Did you, so what, what was your journey like after? So you got your first set of, or your first two transplants and then a few years went by. Did you, you went to medical school, you finished school. Yeah. So actually finished school before, um, my, my transplant happened. Mm -hmm. And so, um, it was just kind of a weird time because I was like, you know, in the beginning of my career and like excited about going to residency and everything. And then I got this like news dumped on me and I was just like, oh my gosh, like, where do I go from here? Because I was kind of like in the mindset that, you know, I still want to do my residency, but then at the same time I had this weight on me that I really didn't know like what to expect because like I had the transplant and, you know, back, back then there wasn't like a lot of like outreach on the internet and there wasn't a lot of people that were young like us that had transplants. So I just, didn't really have any advice on like what would happen to me. And so I kind of was just um, kind of just, you know, like I had all these thoughts running through my head and um, I kept studying for my boards and I actually finished all my boards at that time. And then just had the expectation that, you know, I'll do my residency once I finish um, my transplant and get healthy again. But then like shortly after my transplant, I ended up breaking a ton of bones, like um, just from, maybe the transplant meds and not really, not really sure. Like, and then just because of the kidney disease, maybe it affected my bone health. And so I ended up like when I was working out one day, um, it started with my knee and then ended up breaking like my ankle and the other ankle. And it's just like one thing after another. So kind of was like wheelchair bound for a couple of years. And oh my God. during that time, <laughs> it was just like, I don't really know how I'm ever going to get out of this situation. Cause you can't be running around doing residency with like broken bones, you know? So um, kind of took some time for myself and then actually started working with one of the transplant doctors at my transplant center. And she offered me a position to be a research trainee. So I worked underneath her and kind of just got my feet wet in the field of clinical research and kind of fell in love with it. I did it for about a year and then um, just with my health stuff going up and down and not really knowing like what was going on with my bones. Um, decided to kind of look for a job in clinical research and kind of just kind of stuck with that. That's amazing. I think it's still great that you've used your, you know, training in medical school to get you into this field. And I bet there was times if you asked me during residency, I would have said that you made the right decision. So (laughs) (laughs) now, so you're, how long, I guess, would you say after your initial transplants, uh, the kidney and the pancreas, did your kidney start to have trouble? Um, it was 
it was quite a while after it was probably around like 13 years is when my kidney kind of, it was, my creatinine was kind of creeping up a little bit and they sent me to get a biopsy and they actually found that there was quite a bit of scarring in there and it just didn't look like it was ever going to, you know, heal or get better. So at that point, my doctor was like, let's just start, you know, let's just do the process and start listing you because, you know, it doesn't seem like it's going to get any better at this point. And you might as well accumulate waiting time while you're, you know, still semi healthy and, um, and waiting for your, you know, waiting for your next kidney. So decided to do that like around, I think it was 2016. I, mm-hmm. No, actually, um, sorry, 2018, I believe. And did you end up on dialysis or were you able to avoid it uh, a second time around? So I actually didn't have to start dialysis until um, probably through. So I was on the waiting list for about two and a half years. And then all of a sudden, I don't know how I caught it, but I got Valley fever and um, it was right when COVID hit. And I, I just thought I had COVID. I was just like, I have COVID. Like I, I just felt like total crap. Like I didn't know what was wrong with me and um, got tested like four times and it just kept coming back negative. And um, then I went to my doctor and she did a chest x-ray and she thought I had pneumonia because it was just, you know, a little bit of opacity in my um, x-ray. And, and then from, from literally like two to three days of taking antibiotics, I went from looking like I had pneumonia to full blown, like Valley fever granuloma mm-hmm. in my, in my chest. So, um, so for, up- for the, uh, ignorant among us who live yeah, in, the, in the Northeast, Sejal <laughs> uh, is calling us right now from, uh, Arizona. So tell us oh, what Valley fever is. Crypto. Oh, that's right. <laughs> um, yeah. If you're not down here, you probably don't know what it is, but it's basically, um, a fungus called coccidiomycosis. Oh. Yes. Yeah, so that probably like makes a little bit more sense, but, um, <laughs> Yeah, it's it's pretty common on the West Coast. So, you know, you can just get it from being outside in the air and it it I think it's carried through the soil. So if you breathe in the spores and you can just catch it that way. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. So after you had that infection is when you ended up needing that other transplant, right? Yeah, because I didn't just have like a normal valley fever. I had the disseminated version, which since we're all immunocompromised, we're more likely to get. And so it ended up actually like affecting any kidney function I had remaining and um, just ended up on emergency dialysis during that hospital visit. Did you have to take amphotericin? I actually started fluconazole and I'm going to be on it for life now, but oh wow, yeah. To be honest, I was just trying to test my med school knowledge. <laughs> I, think, I think they do give that to people if they're if, if they can't tolerate fluconazole, though. Yeah. So I'm trying to are... picture sketchy micro for for the. All I remember about amphotericin is that it was amphoterrible. Yeah, I too <laughs> like, like it has that. like a lot of side effects or something. <laughs> yeah, I feel like all the antifungals are horrible. I'm like. <laughs> I remember in sketchy micro, there's a statue there, and his like leg is missing. And it has to do with like the coccyoides, like skin manifestations or something. And it's so interesting. Um, so the people in here who are not doctors or medical students, we're actually talking about this really awesome way of memorizing our, <laughs> our antifungals and microorganisms in med school. It's like with an app or a website called Sketchy Micro. They're not paying us for this, by the way, but yeah, um, they should. It's a way to like memorize 
Constantly. Yeah, it's using like uh, comics to memorize <laughs> medications <laughs> and and uh, diseases. So that's kind of what we do in med school to try and get stuff in our <laughs> brains. I just remember when Sketchy Micro and um, what was the other one? I think it was Picmonic that came out. And I remember studying with my friends in medical school and like three of them had like their notes out. So it was like all these like nice, like serious notes on their computers. And then mine was like a cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> you look like an idiot but you're just a visual helps, learner though. it totally helps like <laughs> yeah. the, the dumber you make it the the more it sticks like yeah. for me at least <laughs> yeah, exactly so we just got completely sidetracked mm-hmm. um sorry. Uh, so sorry about that so so you were telling okay. us though you got valley fever and mm-hmm. ended up on dialysis and then kind of what happens Um, so I actually, um, was, (laughs) was on dialysis and I, I just like was not happy with any kind of dialysis there was. And I think it was just, it's always been a mindset of mine. Like I'm not going to go on dialysis and being forced into it. Um, I tried to like keep a positive mindset and, and tried to find like the best way that would work for me. So I actually ended up doing like every single way that you could. I was, I was in clinic. I did, um, I tried home hemo. I tried, and then I ended up going back to clinic and then I tried PD. So I tried them all. Like if anyone needs advice on what to do, like I've done them all, but Which my one favorite, was your favorite? Yeah. yeah, my favorite was PD just because you could sleep through it. And, um, I had a hard time sleeping. Like once I started the PD, because it actually like hurts because you get all this fluid in your stomach and like, literally like it blows your stomach up with all this fluid and, um, and then it like slowly drains, but it drains over like an hour and it just like that pressure, like I just couldn't take it. So I ended up actually like taking sleep medicine to like help me sleep because I just, I like, I usually don't like to take anything to sleep, but at that time, like that was, that was the only thing that would keep me sane. Cause I got to a point where like, I was so anxious. Like I had to like, if I was driving to work, like I have a 40 minute drive to work, I would have to like pull over the car because I could not sit still, like, because I was not sleeping. And so I was like, I need something to get me through this. <laughs> you were still going to work while on PD and dialysis. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. For those who might not know what we're talking about again, um, PD is peritoneal dialysis. Um, and this is dialysis that can be done using the fluid in your abdomen, uh, which is your peritoneum, um, to, again, this is for people whose kidneys have now failed and we need a new way of trying to remove the toxins and things from our body. Um, and we can do this through your blood or through the abdominal cavity. Um, and what Sajal is talking about is peritoneal dialysis, which you're able to do at home, um, overnight. It's, as she just mentioned, her her favorite type of dialysis, if there can ever be one. Yeah. And so you're going to work, driving 40 minutes, um, and then kind of where, where does things take us? Um, so from there, I just kind of did that for about a year. I think I started in January, and then I did it up until November. And then I got called for my transplant in November. So I only did it for about... 11 months and, um, and it's feel that 11 months felt very long. Just, you know, the, the process of dialysis is very like hard on the body. It's hard. You know, it's just, it's very different because you're not able to eat what you want to eat 
or drink very many fluids. And it just, it just kind of like makes your, your life completely different than what, you know, it was before. So, um, that 11 months felt very long. So I was so, so grateful, you know, for my donor and being able to, um, you know, go back to a normal life. So, um, yeah, my transplant actually happened on Diwali, which is the festival of lights is kind of like our Indian new year. So it was like a very auspicious day and we were just so excited because I had no idea, like, um, it just came out of the blue. Cause I just had in my head that, you know, it's never going to happen. I'm going to be waiting forever, but, um, they had told me it was going to be four to five years for type B. Wow. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah. And I, and I think I just short of three and a half years waited. So yeah, I almost, I almost waited four years, but I got it a little bit early, which I was so grateful for. That's amazing. I always wonder, so one of, you know, one of my attendings is a nephrology critical care doctor. Um, I recently started seeing a nephrologist because I have kidney issues too. And I only recently found out she's, she's basically one of my physicians, but also one of my attendings. And she told Mm -hmm. me that the whole point of nephrology is to keep you away from dialysis. So like Mm -hmm. they also don't want their patients on dialysis. And the whole point is to make you healthy enough. But like, you know, if you end up needing a transplant, that's kind of Mm -hmm. the goal is to, is to bypass dialysis. Mm -hmm. Um, If, I mean, if it ever comes to that, obviously. So I always wonder like, when is the right time? I think, I think now if you have to have like a GFR or, um, of like maybe 20 or something to get on, on the list, but it still takes forever to actually get a transplant. It's one of the longest waiting times. It is. It really is. Um, I think you're right. I think it is like 20. Mm -hmm. And then I think I started dialysis somewhat late because I was really just against it and I was pushing it off. Like my doctor wanted me to start PD when I was somewhat healthy just so I would do better with it and not have to do so many hours. But I waited so long that I was doing 11 hours a night. Wow. Yeah. So the sooner you start, I think the less time you can get away with. So like, I see. um, Yeah. So I think she was thinking like, maybe I would have to do four to six hours if I had started when she told me to, but we butt heads on that one a little bit. (laughs) Doctors are the worst patients. (laughs) We are. (laughs) (laughs) So you're only like five, six months out? Yeah, I think. Yeah, five months. And and how are things going? It's going great. Um, I've been doing well. I had like a a few issues with like low blood pressures here and there, but um, no big, big issues at all besides that. But yeah, it's been great. I'm like back to normal, you know, eating what I want to eat and everything. So it's amazing. That's great. Remember, uh, Sage, all we ask every physician, like, you know, anybody in healthcare, these like funny, dumb questions at the end of each interview or towards okay. the end. <laughs> What's your favorite hospital food you had to choose? <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> let me think. So, so I don't know if they have this everywhere, but at the hospital that I have, that I got my chance for them, they have this like thing. It's called a, like a mushroom strudel. And it's like a puff oh. thing. <laughs> it has like mushrooms in it. It's yeah. like my favorite. Like sometimes I just go down there to get that because I'm lucky to be able to work like where I got my transplant. So like sometimes like when I see that on the menu, I'm like, let me go down and get one for myself. <laughs> <laughs> That's so nice. Yeah. 
It's so good. I, I wish you guys could try it if you like mushrooms. <laughs> yeah, I think I do. Um, okay, so that's one. And then our other question that we usually ask is, I think this is this is actually just a better question. It's not, it's not so much a fun question, but for others mm-hmm. who were in your shoes, mm-hmm. would you still um, encourage them to go through with medicine and finish medical school, residency, or whatever they want to do? Or do you think it's better to not do healthcare with people in our people in our shoes? I think, I think it just matters on, um, on your lifestyle. I, I guess like if, if it's something that you feel like you could do and it won't like stop you from it, like, I feel like I would, I would probably do it, like do my residency. I think when I was like faced with like, having to be in a wheelchair and all that, like, I think that really like kind of made me um, see things differently just because there were also like certain treatments that like my doctors wanted to do for me, but couldn't. And it was all because of insurance, you know, like being younger and not having insurance at that time, like in not working, um, I had to, I had to use like Medicaid, which is like the governmental insurance. So like, I didn't, I didn't quite get like the care that I wanted to. And I know my doctors were like, I really would want to do this, but your insurance doesn't approve it. And that kind of like, like swayed my decision a little bit because I really want to, I always really wanted to be a doctor that I could do the best for my patients. And, Mm -hmm. um, and that really just kind of was a bummer to me that like doctors can't do what's best for their patients sometimes because it's, you know, a lot of like other issues that, you know, prevent you from doing what you can. And so that kind of was stuck in my head. And then the clinical research idea kind of, you know, like grew on me just because it is something that you can offer to anyone and everyone. And what you do um, produce from that can help like millions and masses of people, you know, cure rare diseases or, you know, things that, you know, there aren't treatments for. So I think that's kind of like what, what really um, was like the, the deciding factor for me. But I would, I would recommend like for others, like if they, if they wanted to, and they had the passion to, to do it, because I think it's amazing to be able to help patients and, and yeah. Be, and, and I think helping yeah. comes in like two different flavors, right? Like there's bedside mm-hmm. medicine, but there's also health on this whole other like way that we can help people, whether it's through <laughs> clinical research, through administration, through health policy, like it doesn't have to necessarily be bedside medicine, which mm-hmm. not every doctor could do, but you still finish medical school and there's so much you can still do with your degree. So I do think mm-hmm. it's still important to go into that field. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. yeah. So that's what people, that's what I always tell people. I, I say like, it's not so much your health that should be a deciding factor. It's what you really want to do that you should yeah. really into. I agree. Yeah. Cause you know, your health is always going to be there and you can kind of work around it and you should just follow your passion and what you feel is like best for you, you know, and what would make you happy in life is my motto. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, sound, it definitely sounds like you're still helping and you still bring a unique perspective to your field and a personal drive to try and help in the field that you're in. So mm-hmm. I think you know, any of us who have been through any, like something big like this, it, it just brings an extra drive um, to to try and see the medical field improved mm-hmm. in any way that we can do it. Mm-hmm. 100% agree. So now taking a detour, we're going to talk a little bit brief, just briefly about uh, Evusheld. We got a question from a listener. Um, I apologize. I don't 
have it in front of me and I, I don't remember her name, but she did ask if we would be talking about this uh, because her question was, you know, what, you know, would we be getting this? Um, and if so, why? And if we wouldn't be, why not? For those that don't know, Evusheld is uh, a co-packaged monoclonal antibody. I don't even want to try and say the, the names. names. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if you just want uh, just to look up Evusheld, it's E-V-U. S-H-E-L-D, uh, and it'll tell you the two monoclonal antibodies that make it up. And the reason we're discussing it is because it is under emergency use authorization to be given as pre-exposure prophylaxis to try and prevent, uh, in a way, COVID-19. So, you know, just like the vaccines, it, you know, might not completely prevent you from getting COVID-19, but it's there to try and help you fight COVID-19 off. So who is this, you know, treatment for? This treatment is for um, people who have, who are currently not infected with COVID-19, who have not had a known recent exposure to it, and then who have moderate to severe immune compromise due to a medical condition or receipt of immunosuppressive medications or treatments like the solid organ transplant community and who are unable to mount an adequate immune response to COVID-19. As if you've been listening to us for a little while now, you know, Aline and I have talked about this a lot. Aline does not make any Any antibodies, antibodies, whereas (laughs) I am lucky enough to have made thousands. And so um, the other people it's, it's for, you know, it's for as well as for uh, whom vaccination with any available COVID-19 vaccine, according to the approved or authorized schedule is not recommended due to a history of severe adverse reaction, like a severe allergic reaction to a COVID-19 vaccine um, or components of the COVID-19 vaccine. So people who cannot get the vaccine or people who are immunocompromised, uh, it's under emergency use authorization now to get Evusheld. So speaking of getting it, you both have now received it, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got mine in, um, I think it was like beginning of March, maybe beginning of March. So about a month, month and a half ago. Um, and the reason why I decided to get it, uh, I'll be completely honest with you. I basically just listened to what my transplant ID doctor wanted me to do. Um, I had gotten four vaccines total and I still had zero antibodies. And I work in a very high risk environment. So I actually like work, you know, around COVID patients and um, I work in a hospital and I, you know, still I I quarantine as much as I can and I still wear my mask, but that's not full protection, especially for somebody who doesn't have any antibodies. So because of that, we decided that I would get it. And yeah, that's basically my story. How about you, Sejal? Um, Same. I, I um, took three shots and I didn't have any antibodies. I didn't get the fourth one um, because in the, in the time that I was going to get the fourth one, they called me for the Evosheld. I guess there was about 600 doses that were, um, spread throughout our hospital. And, um, I got a message on my patient portal saying that I qualified. So, um, it was at the very beginning when they were, um, they were thinking that the dose was 150 milligrams, um, per shot. And then you get, um, you know, of course the two shots. And then, um, a few months later they reached out and said that, um, 
they had changed the guidelines and it was actually 300 milligrams. So then I ended up like a month or two later getting the second shot. And, and then I got my blood tested after the second shot and I did actually have antibodies at that point. Oh, that's Finally. great. Yeah. <laughs> they, I know. Me, like I, I actually asked if I should get my antibodies checked. And I think I talked to you about that too. Um, uh-huh. I just didn't know if like the tests that we have at my hospital was good enough to check after I got the monoclonal. Like, I don't know mm-hmm. if it actually tests for the same one, like the spike protein. So um, I decided to not do it just because like, if it had been negative, then I don't know what that really means. Um, yeah. So I, now I have to go back and see if they actually have the, the test now. So you can, I don't know if your hospital does it, Aline, but you can get the nucleo, nucleocapsid and the spike protein. And I think oh. the nucleocapsid tells you if it's like immune reaction. I might be mixing them up, but I think it's the immune reaction from actually catching code. And the spike tells you if you get it from Evershield or the vaccine. Oh, okay. That's good to know. I'll ask. I'll yes. ask, my ask for both. Yeah. Get both of them. Okay. There was a little bit of hesitancy on my end. Um, and I'll be honest with you guys. And this is very, like, everybody knows this with Evershield, but there was um, a tiny, tiny warning about whether or not it was going to cause cardiac effects, if there was any mm-hmm. cardiac side effects. And because I have a heart transplant, that was one thing that I was kind of worried about. But again, the the benefits outweighed the risk in my case. Mm-hmm. So that's why I decided to get it. Yeah, Yeah, I could see that as a big worry. I would, yeah, I would definitely feel the same because that was one of the things that they had um, mostly like that you heard about it. So I could totally understand how you feel like that. For me, I, I was a little worried just because there was like zero um, like information about it really, like in terms of how you would react, you know? So Um, I kind of wanted to wait a little bit, but then at the same time I asked, just like you did, I asked my infectious disease doctors and my nephrologist and they were like, no, if I were you, I would get it. So, um, I just went ahead and did it. Yeah. As soon as I hear that, if I were you, I'd get it. I'm like, I'm just going to go get it. (laughs) Exactly. When my cardiologist says that, I'm like, all right, I'll go do it. (laughs) When I, so I got called recently, um, by my transplant center to see if I would be interested in in getting it. Um, Mm -hmm. And for me, my decision not to get it had nothing to do with with Evisheld itself. Um, It was just because I know that I have a ton of antibodies. Mm -hmm. And if I didn't, though, I would definitely move forward and get Evisheld. And in terms of the cardiac events uh, that people were concerned about, you know, they did see that serious cardiac adverse events happened. Um, They were very rare, though, and I think importantly, and it should be noted that they saw them in people who received the Evosheld and also in people who did not receive it. So at this time, I I think it would be, you know, misplaced to say that, you know, it was definitely Evosheld that caused the serious Mm -hmm. cardiac events in in the patients who got it. If you have a placebo group, a group not getting it um, when they were testing it, also have similar events that that there's a chance that these patients just had underlying um like heart disease that maybe they weren't aware of and you know kind of showed itself during this time frame so um that's good to know for me yeah. it was you know, i would 100 be getting it you know if any t- if you tell me that it's heart event you know cardiac events occurred but they were rare and they happened in both groups um, i would have no concern about getting it and <laughs> you two are here uh, living proof that you can get it do well and at least in say giles um, point she now has antibodies for the first time 
Yeah, which is very exciting because I don't know about you, Aline, but it was a little like scary just to be out and about, like, you know, not knowing that you didn't have antibodies for me, at least like I just, you know, I would go out and do things. I wouldn't limit myself. But at the same time, like in the back of my head was always like, oh, you know, if anything, I'm going to catch it here. You know, like it was just. Yeah, no, I definitely felt the same way, Um, especially because like I knew I didn't have antibodies. So I was like, I felt extra guilty. Like I was like Mm -hmm. putting myself at risk every time. Again, I was still doing things or I still am doing things with Mm -hmm. caution. But before the Evusheld, I was a little, I'm still anxious, but I feel like I was more anxious back then. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Same here. So Sejal, before we let you go, is there anything that you would like you know, to plug or tell our listeners before signing off? Um, I would love to um, thank both of you guys for having me on the show, first of all. And, you know, if any of my, if any, if any of the listeners have any questions about, you know, kidney pancreas transplant, I also on Instagram, um, they can follow me. It's at sagels underscore TX underscore life. So definitely reach out if they have any questions and that's about it. Yeah, if there's any listeners out there, definitely take her up on this because you're getting just a one-sided cardiac uh, transplant view (laughs) from Aline and I. So just the the little heart transplants. Yeah, (laughs) just the little. That's not. (laughs) You guys have been through so much. It's amazing. I think we all have, and that's actually what I was going to say too. Is um, you know, ten, eleven, twelve years ago when you first got your transplant, we didn't have this have social media or it wasn't as prevalent back then we didn't have like groups of physicians with transplant at that time and I think it's amazing that like you know we all come from similar backgounds we all have solid Mm -hmm. organ transplants we're all immunosuppressed working in similar fields so it's really nice to get to know you guys and know that there's a whole bunch of us out there and I think that also could help people who want to go into medicine who aren't sure about it if they're Mm -hmm. immunocompromised. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think it's just amazing, like, you know, whether they want to go into healthcare or not, like just having that social network and being able to like, know that there's people out there like us and, mm-hmm. young, you know, young ones too, because I felt like, you know, in a, in a weird way, like, I felt like this was like, not supposed to be a young person's disease. We're supposed exactly. to be healthy here, yeah. you know, and, and we can be healthy and, and live active lives and do anything anyone can, you know, so I, I just love the fact that like we see all that live yeah. you know, on, on social networks. So I love it. Agreed. And I, I think I cut off Aline when she was saying this earlier, but thank you so much for coming on um, and telling your story and continuing to raise awareness for organ donation. Thank you guys so much for having me. Awesome. Thank you again to Dr. Sejal Patel for coming on today and sharing her story about kidney transplant and as well as talking us to us about Evusheld. If you like our podcast, feel free to download or subscribe or follow um, on any podcast platform. And um, please email us or uh, with any comments or concerns at both sides of the stethoscope at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at uh, both sides of the stethoscope. Thanks for listening. Yeah, thank you. See you all soon.